chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. It's God's Word. There's a story that's told often of of Benjamin Franklin, who when he was exiting the, the Constitutional Convention in 1787... He was approached by some citizens asking after this convention had ended, like, alright, what what sort of government did we get? What has been created? You might remember his words still spoken today. A republic, if you can keep it. What a a brief statement, but it had a lot of depth to it, and that he was very succinct, and we're still talking about it today. A republic, if you can keep it. In other words, he was he was saying in an instant that the government was not only relying on those who drew it up. But it was then going to be passed down and, and there was going to need to be continued involvement from the people, from the governed, to keep it moving, to keep it going forward. That the people that it governed at that point are going to have to be involved in this. They're going to have to do something with it. And so the kind of the question he gives to them is, is what are you going to do with it? With what we've created? And in a similar way, Paul addresses the freedom that Christ has earned and bestowed upon His People and especially to the churches in Galatia here, Christ had won their freedom. He had bestowed it upon them who had trusted in Him. Verse 1 says that in chapter 5. It says, For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. They are free now from justification by law-keeping, from justification by rule-keeping, by justification by circumcision, and any other thing we could throw in there. They are justified by their faith in Christ alone, or they're not justified at all. They are free from the law and the burden that it puts on them of trying to obey perfectly when they have this sinful nature where they can't obey perfectly. They are free from the curse that that brings of the law, the curse that that now would say that you're condemned because you don't obey the law. They are free from the the power of sin, the, the penalty of sin. They're free because of what Jesus has done, because He took the curse upon Himself, that He came to redeem those who were lost. And Paul knows their status, if they're believers, that they are free. And the question before them is now, what are you going to do with that freedom? What are you going to do with that? All that Christ has earned for you, all that you're supposed to be walking in, what are you going to do with that? And Paul in chapter 5 calls believers to walk in freedom. Knowing they should know that the battle is, is now ongoing. Perhaps for some of them just beginning. That now that they're free doesn't mean that the battle is over, but that it is actually in, in many ways just beginning and is indeed ongoing. So the freedom that was granted to believers is to look a certain way though. It's not freedom to just do whatever. It's to take a certain shape and a form. It's to look a certain way. And so after warning them, as we saw last week in, in verses 1 through 12, of their, the, the warning was before that accepting circumcision, after warning them about that, the consequences of accepting circumcision, even warning them about the teachers of circumcision, I think Paul is using that as a means to keep them in their freedom. After doing that, he reminds them again that they've been called to freedom. Verse 13, you were called to freedom, brothers. United to Christ by faith, believers are free from sin, free from death, 
Because, as he Paul said in, in chapter 2, verse 20, that, that they have already died. They no longer live, but the life they live now, Christ is the one who is animating that. Christ lives in them. So in Christ, the law, the sin, death, even, they don't have ultimate power. They don't have ultimate say. Jesus does. The law has had its say, he says. Now the gospel gets its say. And it says, for those who trust, they're free. Now this needs to be solidified in our hearts before we move on to walking in freedom. Not that these truths won't be re- need to be reheard; they will. Not that we there's not more to learn about being free in Christ and the depth there. There, there is. But you need to be convinced of your freedom if you have faith in Christ. Are you convinced that because of your union with Jesus that you're already dead? And the life that you now live is is meant to to have Christ living in you and through you. Are you sure that because of Jesus' works, you are free? That you now have no longer anything to prove before God? That you are no longer working for your acceptance and your justification that you instead are to be working from it? Are you convinced of that kind of freedom? I think many are assured of freedom but have some sort of misdirection in terms of what freedom actually is. Freedom, I don't think, isn't, it isn't necessarily doing what you most want. That would normally be what we think of freedom. Doing what you want to do. You have no restrictions on that. You get to go forward and do it. But I think the real freedom has to take into account design. Think about a fish. Right? They're made for water. But if a fish, like, through the water can see a cat on the shoreline, happens all the time, and thought, man, that looks like fun. That cat's walking around and doing whatever it wants to do. Like, I want to be like that. Trying to jump out of the water. That would be pretty foolish, right? They're not made to live on land. It would be foolish to think apart from, in separation of, the design that the fish has been given. And, and so we have to think, what's our design? Well, I think that there's very good reason. If you're a skeptic and an unbeliever, I, I think there's good reason to say that you were made by this divine creator and that you're an image bearer. And that as an image bearer, you are made to know God, know your creator, and to reflect back to him as an image bearer all of his glory, all of his nature. You're to be like him. So real freedom... I think, is, is living in sync with the design that you've been given from your divine creator. So you, you are designed and created for a certain thing, and you are to live in light of that design. Apart from that, there's no freedom, actually, but more slavery. And so you need to do what you most want to do within the design that you've been given by God. The problem with that is that we, we can't. We have what we call sinful nature. We are fallen And so we don't actually live according to our design perfectly. And we can't actually do all the time what we most want to do or should do. That our conscience is bearing witness that we do. We fight against our design. We want other things. We want to be out on the shore when we should be swimming in the water. And and Paul is reminding us that Jesus died to deliver us from the, the power and the penalty of sin so that we could live according to our design. To live how God has made us. Believers are those who have died with Jesus and have been made new. We're new creatures in Christ. And now, as new creatures, we're we're finally free. And being firmly grounded in that matters before we talk about walking in freedom. So he continues, after having firmly grounded them in this doctrine of justification by faith, 
reminding them of their freedom that Jesus has bestowed upon them by His life and His work. He goes on in verse 13, He says, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What's the flesh? The flesh is what all are in Adam. We all start there, in the flesh. What we are in Adam, our fallen sinful natures, belonging to the present evil age. That's the flesh, corrupted sinful nature. And believers now, we know, aren't in the first Adam anymore. We're in the second Adam. We have a new nature in Christ Jesus. Our bodies, while we're on this earth, the flesh remains, right? It's still present with us, but we have a new nature in that flesh. And so I like what one theologian has said. That the flesh is dethroned, but not destroyed. Doomed to die, but not dead yet. So it helps us work through Galatians and remember what the flesh is. It's sinful, broken nature, but we have a new nature, but the flesh isn't completely gone. It's dethroned, but not destroyed. Doomed to die, but not quite dead yet. And so in other words, as believers, there's still this expectation, this eager awaiting of what's to come when we can finally and fully cast off the old nature, cast off uh, all this was broken inside of us and fully see Christ and be like Him. There's a groaning for the final and full salvation that Jesus is to bring to us in the end. And while waiting for this... Believers still have some of that flesh remaining. They're not to use their freedom as an opportunity for that flesh. Now this exhortation is needed because freedom, while the flesh is so present, can certainly go wrong and does. Now we don't have to think back very far to know that. But if you think about Exodus, the people of God are enslaved to the Egyptians. And God says, you need to get out of there and and go and serve me. Right? And he wants to free them so that they could go and serve God. So God does mighty works and frees the Israelites to go and serve Him in the land that He had promised to give them. And what happens when they're free? When their captors are gone? When the Red Sea is closed back over and they're on their own? Do they serve the Lord? No. They're free, but they use their freedom instead as an opportunity for the flesh to do what they want to do. To groan and complain, to long for days gone past. You think, well, okay, that's the Old Testament. They didn't have the Spirit. We're different. Okay, well, let's look at the book of Corinthians. Here's an irreligious place where Paul comes in preaching and proclaiming the gospel. And a church has started. People believe him. And they're transformed by the power of the the message of the cross of Christ crucified and risen. And what did they use their freedom for? No, they use it for all sorts of things. Early on, they're dividing in the church. They're using their freedom for power plays. They're using their freedom for sexual immorality. We're free. We can do what we want, right? And Paul says, no. They use their freedom to eat idle meats, which Paul says, that's not a big deal, except for that you don't care about your brother and you're searing his conscience as you're doing those things. They use their freedom to to express their gifts so that they could be the center of of the show, so that everybody else would come and listen to them and think they're something great. I mean, all sorts of ways where they're, they're believers, they're, they're running in the, the right lane, except they're using their freedom over and over again as an opportunity for the flesh. And Paul says, don't do that. Don't use your freedom like that. Don't let it be an opportunity for the flesh. Freedom shouldn't look like that. And what, does, what should freedom look like? He says, use it to, through love, serve one another. What freedom looks like is servanthood. That sounds... Uh, you know, like opposite to us, right? You're free. You don't, you don't serve again. And actually, I think the word is a little bit stronger than what we'd consider servant. You're free to be slaves now. That's what you're set free to do. You are now free to be slaves of others. This is what Paul is telling them to do. 
And so in other words, you, you are meant to give up your lives because one gave up his life for you. You are meant to now give up your lives for others, and that's freedom. And it looks like mowing the grass for other people. And it looks like doing their dishes or making them meals when they're sick and have children. It looks like praying for them when they don't ever see you. It looks like watching their kids when they need help. It looks like, and this actually happened out a friend, Kevin. It looks like watching pet rats when someone is away. It's a real story. It's a couple. It's getting married. Didn't have much money. Had a couple pet rats. Going on their honeymoon. Needed someone to feed the rats. My friend exemplified serving one another through love by going over and babysitting their rats. Because Jesus freed him. And he never thought anything of it because he just thought, I'm, I'm able to serve. Why would I not serve my brothers? Jesus frees us now to live according to our design. And our design is to, in love, serve other people. And then there's great joy in going along in that design, right? The fish, you know, like when he figures out you're a fish, you're made to be in the water, stop trying to jump on the land and flop around like swim. There's joy in that. There's freedom in that as the fish can swim. So instead of jumping out of the water and over again, swim, be free. And that's what God is calling us to. And he's calling us to love and serve other peoples. And, and Jesus shows us what this looks like so well, doesn't he? When it says of Jesus that he, he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. You might recall John chapter 13 where Jesus stoops down really low, takes on the form of a servant by wrapping a towel around his waist, and he washes dirty feet. John's feet, Peter's feet, Judas's feet. Servants. That was a, a very real portrayal of what we see in Philippians chapter 2 where it says that Jesus humbled himself taking on the form of a servant, even humbling himself to the point of death and death on a cross. This is the life of Jesus. He's showing us what freedom is. Jesus lived in perfect freedom as the perfect man. And he's showing us what that freedom looks like. And he, and he starts washing feet. And he, he lays down his life for the good of others. That's freedom. That's service of other people. And he does this in fulfillment of the law, which Paul turns to in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul here quotes Leviticus chapter 19, which I think is interesting if you've been with us through Galatians. right? We've been talking a lot about the law and a lot about how we are to use the law and what's its purpose. And, and it seems strange for Paul to use the law right here. One commentator says this, that it, it is astonishing that Paul speaks here fulfilling the Old Testament law after emphasizing in such detail that believers are no longer under the Old Testament law. Paul seems to think that there's something else at play here. He says that loving one's neighbor fulfills the whole law. And so you are to do that. It's not as if the law has been cast off. He's saying now you're free to fulfill that law. Christ has actually freed you to now you can obey that law. You can do the right thing. It's, it's not a duty. It's not a burden. It's a joy to fulfill that law now. And so he says, this is the law, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we know we have to be careful about saying, who's my neighbor? Because someone did that to Jesus and they got this like long story about it. About like people you don't even know being hurt on the side of the road you're supposed to help. So we better be careful. We know, alright, it's not just people that are physically around me. But it is interesting that we don't see the, the first greatest commandment here, right? I mean, 
The whole law is fulfilled. Jesus said that the, the whole law hangs on these two, that you love the Lord with all that you are and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul only lists one. He says the whole law is fulfilled in that. So what's going on here? Well, I think that some, a couple things are at work. I think Paul seems to be focusing a little bit more on horizontal relationships here. He's starting to move out. It's like, here's how you need to take this doctrine of justification and live it out in your horizontal relationships with one another and in the church and even with these false teachers. But... What's also the case is that the first greatest commandment, that you should love the Lord your God with all that you are, is manifested, is displayed in love for others. Or it isn't real. Your love for God should be, is, will be displayed in love for others, or it doesn't exist. Period. John said much about love in his... Gospel and then his epistles, but we look at First John chapter 4. John affirms this. First John chapter 4, verse 19. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Pretty clear litmus test. If you, if you can't love people who are made in the image of God, that God has put right in front of you, you can see them, their flesh, and yet you say you love God, he says, you're a liar. I'm not speaking harshly there. John is. You're a liar if you say that. How could you love an unseen God when, when you have people in His image right in front of you that you don't care about? So you don't have one without the other. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love God. We love because He first loved us. One display of love for God is love for others. And this is neat that we can, we can both give this and receive it. So we as believers are, are now part of the means that God is using to display His love to other people. It's through us that God is going to display that He loves people. And we get to receive that. That it's through people, through the, the, the believers, the, the church gathered together, that we get to receive love from God, from these people. God is funneling that love through people. And Paul says that, you are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. This fulfills the whole law. So the way to do it is as yourself. Which I think is really interesting that there's never an explanation of how that's supposed to look. I, it's assumed, right? It's like, you, know, you don't even need to, we don't need to explain this, right? It's assumed that you know how to love yourself. Luther says this in his commentary. He says, if you want to know how you ought to love your neighbor, ask yourself how much you love yourself. And then kind of just go with that, right? <laughs> right? How much did you want breakfast this morning? Want that breakfast for everybody else in that kind of way, right? Maybe we could say that about so many things. Like, just know how much you care and think about your own interests. And he says, start doing that for other people. We, we naturally seek our own interests. And, and the command is to now seek that same kind of thing for other people. This is summed up in Philippians 2. He says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which it's yours in Christ. This is the mind of Christ. This is what he did. And of course it goes into that passage of, of Jesus humbling himself, serving, giving his life, even on the cross, that, that we might see this example, but also see his life in front of us. So the gospel frees us from thinking too much of ourselves and of thinking too little of ourselves. Right? It, it frees us from thinking too much of ourselves because the cross is this vivid picture of if your sin is that bad that Jesus had to die, 
But it also frees us from thinking too little of yourself. Like, God loves you enough. You are are His image bearer that He would die for you. That He does desire you. That He does want to know you. And the gospel frees us from both of those errors. And what it does is it frees us to think of ourselves less. Not to think of ourselves too much or think of ourselves as too little. But to think, and just in general, to think of ourselves less. Or to not think of ourselves at all. The gospel gives us the mind of Christ who laid down his life for others. And that's the mind that we're to have when we display love for others. And this must not, display, or must not describe the atmosphere of the churches of Galatia. Because in verse 15, Paul says this. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. There's all sorts of one another commands in the scripture. Here's one of the not one another's. Like, don't do this. Don't bite one another. Don't devour one another. This would consume you if it continues. The image is an image of a, of a pack of wild animals, which doesn't seem like one that you'd want to often use for the church, for believers, but that's exactly what he's saying. They're, they're tearing at one another like wild dogs, like they're going after one another. Over what? I mean, it's unclear. I mean, we don't know exactly what they're tearing one another about. Surely you would think that there's some theological discussions going on here, especially since Paul is bringing up this whole mess of circumcision and justification by faith and acceptance, all these kind of things. Surely that's part of it. Perhaps in their response to Paul's opponents and to the message of the gospel and to the message of the opponents, perhaps to that they're they're starting to get after each other. But whatever the case is, there's strife and there's quarreling. So we don't, we don't know how, what form this is taking. How are, they, how are they biting and devouring one another? Well, I, I don't think that they're, they're fist fighting. They might be. I don't know. But it, Paul doesn't really seem to be like, hey, don't physically harm one another. So it, it leads you to think, that, and, and, and given some of the kind of like, the, the, the way that they're biting and devouring one another is through how they're speaking to one another. Through their words. And of course, even if that's not what's going on here, we see all sorts of warnings in the Scripture to watch how we speak because our, our tongue is a world of unrighteousness, James says. He's set a force on fire. And so if we're just critical or harsh or ungracious or dishonest with our words, he says those kind of things can devour one another to the point where they're consumed. James would have the same agreements. You burn that forest down. So we don't know what all form it's taking, but he warns them. They know. Watch out. That you are not consumed by one another. The freedom that they have in Jesus isn't being exercised rightly. And Paul wants to redirect it into service. What are they using their freedom for? And what are, what are we using our freedom for? What are we doing with it? Because our freedom doesn't need to just look like whatever. Our freedom needs to take a certain shape. It's to be a, a cruciform shape, a, a giving shape, a, a shape of laying my life down for the good of others. The way to live out our freedom is to live according to our design. To lay our lives down that others might be built up to serve others in love. And knowing all along the way that this is how God has made us. We're satisfied in that. There's joy in that. So how are you serving others? How are you putting your freedom that Christ has bestowed upon you to work? Are you putting others' interests above your own? Are you willing to watch, babysit rats if necessary for the good of others? It's never required in the scripture, but maybe it's implied. The call to use our freedom to, su- to serve other people it is a call from God to live the good life. To live a, a joyful life, a satisfying life. This is how you're made. You're made to know God and love other people as God does. 
And so in a way, I'm trying to make it sound easy. And maybe it does. Like, okay, live according to design, swimming in the water, like that. Satisfaction. Want that. I can find that in other people. All right, I'm serving other people. Good. Full of joy. No problem. Let's do this. But then we hit verse 16. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul comes to the the area, the the region of Galatia, preaching the gospel. The Galatians, they hear with faith, and in with hearing with faith, they receive the Spirit, and they're set free. They're no longer under the, the penalty of the law. They're no longer under the curse of the law. They've been redeemed. And so then their struggles stop, right? Everything's good to go. Of course not. Are they to live in complete victory now? Like, that's what you're doing. We've been set free. We received the Spirit. We're all happy about this. We're living the, the victorious life now, right? Well, that's the narrative some will tell you today. But I think we need to be very, very clear about what we're saying when we're talking about the Christian life. Because when we're saying that we are to live life in complete victory, that may be true, but you better explain what you mean. Because experience and the Bible kind of shatter that idea. You think about the, the picture of, of becoming a believer. It's the picture of new birth. Not a mother. They're like, that's a struggle. Right? Struck, birthing is a struggle. And then it's like, oh, the, the children are here. Like, everything's fine now, right? No problems. No, all sorts of problems. Like, now life is actually beginning. And there's all sorts of struggle all around all the time. It never stops. And so, like, now that you're born... It's not that the struggle stops and you're going to live a victorious life now for the rest of history. Like, no, now the struggle, in a way, it, it, now it begins. And so when some describe Christianity as this life of victory, I think we need to explain that pretty carefully. Because I think that you could also describe the Christian life as a life of struggle. Now one commentator says that regeneration, being born again, becoming a believer, makes man's heart a battlefield. Where the flesh, the old man, tirelessly disputes supremacy of the spirit, the new man. So now we're actually in the battle. Once we're born again, now the struggle actually starts. So no one's spiritual life exists without struggle. So if there's not struggle between flesh and spirit in your life, then the problem isn't that you've got something... Like, the problem is you may not have the spirit. That's the only reason that the struggle actually comes is when the spirit enters in. So maybe there's no spirit if there's no struggle. Because the flesh definitely remains. We're waiting for that to be done away with finally and fully. So that remains. And there ought to be a struggle. And thankfully, for that struggle, God's grace doesn't just stop when we're converted. Here's grace to be saved. Now you're on your own. Good luck with that struggle between the flesh and the spirit. No. Grace doesn't just... Start the journey. We saw this earlier in Galatians, right? We're not just saved by grace. We're transformed by grace. The the technical, we're not just justified by grace. We're also sanctified by grace. The gospel that saves is the gospel that transforms. It helps us keep going. That the spirit that was given when we heard the gospel and believed is the spirit that remains and is the spirit that opposes the flesh that remains in us as well. So flesh and spirit are pitted against one another. And he says that it's so deep that it goes all the way down to their desires, their wants. That's how far down this war goes. So the problem with the flesh is that it's not just outward actions. That's tough enough, right? I mean, we have all sorts of outward actions that it's hard to stop. I want to quit doing that. And you can try and try and try. And 
you could probably make some progress, but if that were it, that would be hard enough, but that's not it. The flesh has, it goes all the way down, not just outward, it's, it's outward because it's inward, it's coming outside of us, it's, we're doing what we most want to do. There's wants and desires inside of us that need to be rooted out. So we have the, the spirit that is given, that is, that is working against motivations of the flesh. We need that Spirit. This is why the Old Testament promised to give the Spirit and to write the law upon the hearts. Because our problem wasn't just external. The Israelites' problem wasn't just you, you aren't getting it right on the outside. You need to change your behavior. Your problem is that you don't want these things. You don't love God. You don't love others. You have a motivational problem. It's not just behavioral. And so the Holy Spirit that was given is, is much more than, than a behavior modification tool. God wants more than that. And God does more than that. That's why He gives the Spirit. It'll go deeper than that. So sin has to be cut off at the behavioral level. Don't misunderstand that. It has to be cut off in our behavior, in our outward actions. But, but we have to go deeper. Sin has to be cut off at the motivational level as well. All the way down to our hearts. And so now, all of a sudden, if you start to think about that, we can see how intense this battle is going to be. Because we know how hard it is to change our behavior. And now we have to go underneath that. And we see all these horrible motivations and desires that we have. That the Spirit is now going to have to do battle with. Every believer then is in a war zone. We're in this battle. And if there's no battle, you're probably not a believer. But there's a resolution. Verse 18. He says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the gospel calls us to live under the reign of, of the Spirit in a world that is dominated and reigned by the flesh. So what the gospel frees us up to live under the reign of the Spirit. And believers are those who have been called to freedom. Who have been called by the power of the Spirit to live. Have been freed up to live according to how they've been designed. And so what the law does, and what it can only do, is it can give the standard. And that's what the law always did. It gave the standard. It couldn't change the motivation. The law gave us that standard, not the motivation to then walk accordingly and to want what the law wanted. It just gave us the standard. But now the Spirit comes along, and we we have the standard in the law. We also have now the Spirit that gives us the motivation to obey that law. We don't cast it aside. We walk accordingly now because we have the Spirit. And so by the power of the Spirit, we can recognize the battle. We can recognize the struggle. And we can enter into the struggle by His power. And and in our pain, we can cry out, as Paul said, those who are sons, here's how they cry out, Abba, Father. That only comes by the power of the Spirit. By the Spirit, there's this new status that's now recognized. I don't need to earn my status before God because the Spirit testifies that I'm a son. I have nothing to prove anymore because I've been accepted before God. I don't need my justification to be won by my circumcision or law keeping because Jesus did all that and I trust in Him that when I have faith in Him, I'm really united to Him. Amen. We're accepted. And now, by the power of the Spirit, we can walk accordingly. Amen. Responding, as Paul says, to the Spirit if you are led by the Spirit, he says. And so now, we're set free to be led. To let the Spirit lead us. Now that can be a a, a troubling water to talk about because that can seem so... I can't put my fingers on what it means to be led by the Spirit. What is that? 
And I found this quote helpful. Leads is rightly taken to mean guides, but the guidance in view here is not a revealing to the mind of divine direction hitherto unknown. It is rather an impelling of our wills to pursue and practice and hold fast that sanctity whose terms we know already. That's kind of a hard quote. Maybe should have found another one. <laughs> Think about it. That the Spirit is given to guide us. And, and it's not as if He needs to reveal something new to us that we have not known, haven't seen, don't know anything about. The Spirit is now enabling us to walk according to what we already know by changing our wills, by changing our wants, by changing our desires. It moves inside of us all the way down to the motivational level. And now we don't have to find new things to obey. We go to the things that we've already been revealed to us. And now we have the motivation to obey it by the power of the Spirit. Maybe I'll put that as the quote next time. I'm not as smart as him, so I can't do that. Walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit is actually doing what God has already told us to do in the Bible. But now we can do it because we've been set free. Whereas before we have this burden, I can't do this, I can't do this, I have a sinful nature. Jesus comes and He says, take my yoke upon you, try this one out. And we can walk accordingly. And Paul calls the Galatians and he calls believers to walk knowing that they've been set free by the Spirit, knowing that the Spirit is changing, working on them down, not just to their actions, but down all the way to their wills, their motivations, their desires. Flesh and its desires remain. The battle rages on, but the freedom of living according to the Spirit, what joy there is in that. There's this great literary character, hopefully you've heard of him, if not... It's a great name as well. It'll stick in your mind. It's C.S. Lewis's character in the Chronicles of Narnia, and his name is Eustace Scrub. What a great name. Eustace Scrub. He was a rotten kid. Really greedy. Really selfish. Like the whole time you just, if you read the books, you want to fight him. You just want him to, to get a fist in the face some way or another. That is what you want for Eustace Scrub. And Eustace, he goes on this voyage of the Dawn Treader and he gets on an island and kind of wanders off by himself. And he, he finds some treasure. And as he's with this treasure, he starts doing what any selfish, greedy person would do. He starts imagining life and the luxury of living with this treasure and all that he could do with it. And the power he could have with it, all this kind of stuff. How life would be with this treasure. And, and in that, he falls asleep. Pretty soon he wakes up and he's changed somewhat. His arm is hurting. He had put a gold bracelet on his arm and it was throbbing it's painful and he starts to look around and figures out that he wakes up as a dragon this is an outward manifestation of his inward condition right and, and it's awesome that the story gets to do this he has become on the outside what he was on the inside he's a monster he's a greedy selfish monster he's a dragon and his, the bracelet that he put on hurts him deeply. It's throbbing. It's painful. He's, he's weeping tears because now he knows he's cut off from all other humans because he's a dragon. And so there's all sorts of turmoil and hurts. And in the middle of this, up walks a lion. His name is Aslan. The God character, if you will. And, and, and like our God, in, in mercy and in grace, God comes to him in his pain comes to him in his condition and meets him there. And he takes Eustace the dragon to the top of a mountain where there's a garden. 
And in this garden, there's a, a pool of water, a well, it's described. And, and Eustace knows, I mean, like, with this, this, this armband on that he's clawed and scratched at, but can't get off. He knows, if I could just get in that water, like, that would feel so much better. There would be relief in that water. But Aslan commands him to do something. He says to him, undress. In other words, you can't go in in your current condition. And so Eustace figures out, like, all right, I'm not a person anymore. Don't have clothes. Like, I'm a dragon. What a dragon. We've shed our skins. And so he starts tearing away uh, his skin, his dragon skin. And, and a layer comes off, like you'd expect, a snake or whatever. Like a, I guess dragons are the same. Layers of skin come off. But the problem is, is that he starts tearing a layer, and then another layer, and then another layer, and then another layer, and then another, and, and he can't ever get to the bottom. He can't do it. It's, it's doing no good. It's, he's spinning his wheels. This is life in the flesh. Pulling off layers. Layer after layer after layer. I want to change this behavior. I'm going to change this behavior. I'm going to do this over and over again. And yet we can't get to the bottom. Spinning our wheels. We can't do it. Another layer always remains. And, and we, we can't do more. We, you know, hopefully you're, you're at that point. Christians come to that point where it's like, I can't do more. I come to the end of myself. I, I can't do it. I'm not going to be able to get into the pool. We try to change our behavior, but our motivations, the the core of us, are so impure, so off, that we know it's like, it's no use, I'll tear off another layer, and there's still going to be another one behind that one. So Aslan speaks to him, and he says, you will have to let me address you. Eustace is so desperate, tired of tearing off layers, pain throbbing because of the bracelet around him. He's desperate enough. To let a scary lion get his claws out. That's how we have to be. Desperate enough. I've come to the end of myself. God has to work and he's going to have to bring the claws out. Whatever it takes. I need relief. And Eustace says this in the story. He says the very first tear he made was so deep. That I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Aslan picks Eustace up and he throws him in the water after tearing off his dragon skin. He starts swimming around as a boy again. Believers, God has cut right into our hearts and ripped the skin off. And his aim wasn't outward transformation only. He wanted all the way to the heart, cutting us to the core, that way our motivations would change. God pulled the skin off of us, freeing us from the flesh, and he gave us the spirit that we might be led by him now as new creatures, transformed by his grace. Amen. We're like Eustace in more ways than one. The part that I don't like is the part I start to feel like as much as I want to punch him, I also am him. And God has to do that to me. And here's the thing, is that God has always had for eternity perfect freedom. Living in relationship with Himself, Father, Son, Spirit. Perfect freedom. He does not need anything and He creates. He doesn't need someone to love. He loves Himself. He doesn't need someone to serve Him. He doesn't need anything. And yet, He creates. And His love didn't start at creation. It was already present. And so He just overflows that into creation. And the the Godhead 
uses this perfect freedom, perfect love to serve a broken world. To come in and start pulling skin off. To rescue and then to set us free. And this is ongoing. Like We're still in the battle. And God is still in it too. And so brothers, sisters, we're called to freedom. So what are you doing with it? Let's ask God to, to use us and the freedom He's given us wisely. Pray with me. Father, thank You for setting us free. The wound of that for some was harder than others. But God, oh the joy of having the skin off. God, I want to pray. There are some that probably don't know that. That have not experienced the joy of living according to design. That the, the, the sound of dying to yourself and serving others sounds horrible. And I pray that you change their hearts. And draw them to yourself and show them the joy and the satisfaction of laying down our life. Living like you lived. And honoring you in the, in the whole thing. And God, I pray for believers. We are so sinful. So prone to weakness. So prone to wander. Help us not use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Help us not divide, bite and devour one another that we be consumed. Instead, God, would you help us lay our lives down for our neighbor? Being led by the Spirit, obeying your commands, would you help us love one another well? And God, may the world know that we are believers by our love. Amen.